and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. My guest today has had over 30 years experience in the oil and gas industry, a strategic and inspirational leader who creates high-impact, high-performing teams, resulting in optimization of cost and outcomes. He has worked in many countries across the globe as the group CIO, and his wealth of knowledge will be invaluable to this discussion today. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Craig Walker is a Senior Vice President in the Office of the CEO of Salesforce. Prior to this, Craig had extensive experience in the energy sector and downstream roles to include Vice President, CIO of Shell International Petroleum Company, Group CIO of Shell Trading, Pan-African CIO, and a partner in one of the big five consulting firms. One of the aspects of his role is the effective management of teams and the management of relationships with suppliers across various continents. He prides himself on being the kind of leader that gets things done, as well as empower others to do the same. He is a member of the RDS IT executives, and his international portfolio includes South Africa, the US, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, and Colombia. Excellent communication skills He's described as commercially savvy with a focus and deep understanding of technology investments. His work ethos creates a culture of innovation and continuous improvement through solutions mindset. Together, he and his multidisciplinary teams make extraordinary things happen. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Craig to X Talk. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Craig. Thank you very much indeed, Elaine. Uh, that was a wonderful introduction. Uh, I've obviously got something to really live up to now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all true. Okay, I think I'll dive straight into the, the, the first question. Um, you are my first CIO at TED's Talk, so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation and to your take um, on, on the you. topics of the day. Firstly, let's talk about some of the long-standing qualities needed to be a fully functioning CIO in a multinational corporation briefly if you can can you provide me with a, a description of the traditional traditional qualities and role of a group cio well i, I yeah it's interesting that you say uh, traditional because i think it's changed hugely in the last um five to ten years you know i think a lot of people when they started out in their careers the term cio didn't even exist yeah you 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 worked your way through it and you became a manager at various uh levels and i think that word cio started out with really somebody who had the technical skills had been through operations mm -hmm. understood how to do it understood the technology mm -hmm. that shift in the last five to ten years i would say is very much about you have to become a business person for too long uh cios it people have sat in the back room they've been seen as a service they've been criticized for being expensive overly complex too slow etc etc I think the CIO of today has to step out of that and has to be seen as a key 
member of the business teams on which um, they're able to sit and indeed their people are able to sit. Because without that, you're, no company is going to get the full effect, the full uh, opportunity that the technology today offers. Mm. That's interesting because it, it kind of nicely fits into my, my next question, which is about the digital landscape and how that's reshaping. Um, it's really reshaping the IT roles in an organization. I've had a, a CDO, a chief data officer on Headstalk. I've also spoken with a, a, another CDO, a chief digital officer. Both agree on the increasing and pivotal role they play in the, in the digital and data-driven environment. These two C-suites will inevitably change the, the executive layout and dynamics. How do you envisage, as a CIO, working with one or both of these CDOs? How does that impact the role? And should CIOs morph and wear the hat of a CIO-driven <laughs> organization? Or, or a separate and particular type of skill is needed for these fairly young C-level roles? What do you think? Um, yeah. So... I think a lot of companies have gone through a little bit of an evolution around these other C-level roles. Mm. You know, if you think back to the, uh, the turn of this century, um, so uh, the year 2000 onwards, there was a lot of excitement about e-business, about getting onto the web. And a lot of companies set up um, e-businesses, e e-departments, whatever you want to call them, and they ended up spending a lot of money and not doing very much. And I think there is a danger of doing the same now. The word digitalization is a very interesting one. I mean, you know, I've been, yeah, I started out as a programmer. I started programming before I even joined Shell during my university course. Digitalization, I think I've been doing that for 40 years. I don't think I was doing analog. I think I was doing digital. Mm -hmm. So to start to try and say digital is something special, it's something different, and I therefore need to create a separate department to drive it, I actually think is a mistake. But I think the CIO has to stand up and be counted and say, that is within my scope. Yes, I may well need a CDO reporting to me. I, weigh, I may well need a CTO reporting to me. But in companies where I see the two separated, I see a lot of um, friction. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of wasted money. I see a lot of people pushing different agendas and different ideas and trying to show basically who has the biggest department. I think that's part of the growing pains of this new world. Mm -hmm. But what really is digital? And you said it, it's about the data. Mm -hmm. Everything comes back to data. The lifeblood of digital is data. Mm -hmm. You know, these days we can acquire it, we can move it, we can process it, we can turn it into information, we can deliver it to, to, to a device that is context relevant to the job someone is doing in a way that we couldn't, certainly couldn't do 10 years ago, we probably couldn't do five years ago. So this is about digital and this is how you transform a business. Certainly these new technologies can be, can be used to make you more efficient and more effective. You might argue that was the uh, traditional role of many IT departments, but now, it's genuinely about transforming a company in the way it does business. Because with this technology, you are gonna recognize that you can create new business revenue streams based on new business models that you could not have done without the data you now have available. So for me, this is why the CIO has to step up, has to be seen as a business person first, has to have a strong team under him or her who also is a business person first and can be on those business teams, mm 
part of a strategic discussion, part of a tactical discussion, challenging, bringing in thought leadership, bringing in third party ideas, encouraging people to look at things in a different way such that the business makes the best decisions going forward. What you don't need is a CDO or CTO sitting elsewhere in the company, basically acting as a consultancy, consultancy mm -hmm. to the business outside of what you're trying to do. So for me, it, this is about working together. And the best way to work together is to have them in the same department together, all working for one head of IT. Now, you might want to make, call that the head of technology, whatever you want to call it, but don't split them across different, right. different um, executives on your board. That, I think, is a route to um, not getting the most out of it. And at worst, it causes chaos. All right. So, so while they're sort of buzzwords of the day, they shouldn't be separated. They should all be working under one, perhaps under the CIO. They should be working in that space. That is my belief, yes. Okay, that's good. Um, still sticking with business and um, with my next question, and I'd, I'd like your sort of take on this. Um, do you remember the days of a business strategy and vision using IT and data as enablers? Do you remember that phrase we always used to use? Um, two very separate entities and people in that space, that you, and you've just mentioned that now um, they need to mesh as one. Has this, you know, I'm asking the question that you've answered, so has it fundamentally changed in this digital landscape or did it change beforehand? Or has digital nothing to do with it? I think it was changing. I so, think it was changing anyway, Elaine. Um, I mean, I think we regardless were, of digitalization. Yeah, I think we were on a journey. Mm -hmm. What has changed it so fundamentally now is the speed. So I, I can remember uh, back in the 1990s, the 2000s, when I headed up different strategy organizations, mm -hmm. we would look at building one to three year plans. You know, we had information plans and you would build these amazing plans with the business and you'd set out your strategy, etc. Mm -hmm. To be brutally honest, right now and probably for the last five years, and particularly in this COVID um, era that we find ourselves, if you can plan more than a year ahead, you are a genius. <laughs> we are moving so fast now that the key to everything we do, business and IT, is about flexibility, agility, customer centricity, looking at what you need right now and in the foreseeable future and getting to that really fast. You know, I think gone, I wouldn't say gone are the days of the big projects, but this is about being fast, focused and it's about speed to value it's not about writing separate plans it's not about the business doing their thing over here and then saying it how can you enable us to do this it's about building the plan together this isn't even about it partnering with the business i hate that word as well we are the business we are all part of the business so you build the plans together you you do that in an iterative process there's some things that are going to work fast because of the technology other things that might not be uh be uh ready yet and the business might be disappointed if they put that in their plan and think it is going to enable it so you build the plan together and you're focused on the next six nine twelve months out of course you have the big vision mm -hmm. it's about thinking big but it's about all those smaller steps you're going to take to get there understand the house you want to build have that in mind, but you might start in all different places, but you're driving towards that final vision you have, which may sit 18 months, two months, three years out. But you can bet your bottom dollar in today's world, it's going to change and constantly change. And that's why everyone who works 
on a business, with a business, has to be in the room for these things. You can no longer plan in separation. You can no longer budget in separation. It has to be done jointly. Mm -hmm. what, what I'm getting from this is, is pretty much your ethos in terms of how teams work together and to cut out the sort of the, the separation, not just physical separation, but name separation in, in, in yes. that. Yes. We're going to go into greater detail about that in, in terms of um, how you view teams, your leadership styles. So um, let's just park that point for the time being. But let's pick up a point that you also mentioned, which was about the sort of the old big IT implementation projects that we've all embarked on. You know, the approach to the project is very different, very, very different from the old big implementations that, you know, we've all worked on. And um, we talk a lot about the agile methodologies now, small but very small projects working together, small, flexible teams. What's your impression? How do you see companies approaching big implementations now? And how has that impacted the role of the CIO in this space? Well, I think big implementations are still going to exist, yeah? Um, because there are things that are just big and complex mm -hmm. to do. But I, but I think the caution there is, when you look at some of the major projects that have been done by, by many of us in the past, and most of us bear scars from doing those, mm -hmm. some of these things took one, two, three years to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, they cost tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And at the end of the day, they always disappointed in some way. Yes. I think you do these big implementations and then it takes you a number of years to get it right. And certainly when I was um, global CIO of Shell, Shell Downstream, if you took, say, our global implement, uh, implementation of SAP, mm -hmm. ran for 50, 60,000 uh, uh, users 24-7 um, across the world. It was one of the biggest implementations out there. We had a very simple um, strategy around it. It was three S's. Simplify, shrink, sustain. Make sure you use that big central system for what it's best at. SAP is magnificent at doing the financials, doing the books, doing the accounts, doing the invoicing. Magnificent at inventory and tracking that inventory movement and holding that inventory and, all, and uh, your supply mm -hmm. chain and all those good things. Use it for that. Simplify it back to what it should be for. Get it into a sustainable mode. And then in the deed, um, in case of um, that particular um, uh, system, we were doing uh, releases quarterly, monthly, and weekly, depending on the risk. So the big systems are very important to you. You know, I have Maximo, Primavera, Compass, Ariba, very, very important systems. But they're not where the money's made. Those systems are about master data. They're about efficiency and effectiveness and accuracy, and they're systems of record. Once you've got those where you want them, I was in no rush. You know, I would upgrade to the latest patch releases because that's important these days from a security point of view and for added functionality. But neither myself nor the business was in any rush to replace them. Because where the money is made, where the real difference is made, where the transformation is made is around the edge of those big systems. So I think a lot of companies have entered an era of saying, right, I've consolidated my big systems. I know certain of those suppliers would like us to upgrade to the latest and greatest, but actually very few of those are upgrade paths. They're actually re-implementations. That's going to cost me a lot of money again. I'm not sure I actually want to do that. What I want to do now is use these more modern cloud-based uh, systems, of which obviously Salesforce is one, where I'm going to use it as a wrapper to those systems, and I'm going to work fast. I'm going to look at where we really have burning bridges, where we have opportunities in the marketplace, where I see an opportunity for a new business stream, for a new way of working, for a new 
um, uh, for a new um, innovative way of dealing with our suppliers, our customers, even our employees. Because remember, everybody's desire from IT is changing and COVID has pushed that faster. It's not just about our customers. Our suppliers want to work with us differently. Our employees expect something different. Our, our third party maintenance company, our logistics company, they expect to be connected to us. Mm -hmm. So building wrappers around these big systems in fast, iterative ways with agile teams, as you say, um, with a product mindset rather than a project uh, mindset is the way you accelerate this speed to value, which was all important to me. What is my speed to value? And I'm going to measure my success and my team's success by what we deliver to the business. Did another 10,000 people come through the door? Did we sell another thousand tons of product as we said we would if we put, put in the system? Did another million people sign up to the loyalty scheme because of that new application release? Mm -hmm. The metrics become about different things because my big central systems, I'm in charge, I'm the CIO. I'm, I expect table stakes of 99.9% .9 uptime. I expect secure, reliable operations. But when I talk to the business, whether it be a mistake we've made or an investment we've made that has been successful, I talk value. You know, if I have my quarterly review with the retail, the EVP from retail, I, he, he doesn't give a damn about the uptime of my servers. But if, uh, but if something went wrong and I don't know, we um, shut down payment processing in Malaysia at 9am on a Monday morning at the retail sites, I have to sit there and go, sorry, Ishvan, I just cost you $300,000. It's going to cost 30000 to put that right. Let's have a business decision on whether you want to spend the money to stop that happening again. We think there's a one in five chance it'll happen again this year because of the problem we've seen. You've got to move things to business decisions because, to be honest, even the separation of IT investment budget is ludicrous. This is business expenditure. The business should decide, am I going to spend this on steel? Am I going to spend it on marketing? Am I going to spend it on training? Am I going to spend it on safety? Am I going to spend it on buying more trucks or building more pipeline? Or do I spend it on IT? It's a business decision. The days are gone where IT is something separate. We should run IT because it is IT. I'm the professional. I'm the CIO. I have a professional team. But I'm absolutely lockstep with the business. Make sense? Yes, it does. It's, I, mean, I mean, if you were to use some a quick buzzwords to explain what you're saying, it's like smart investments, smart implementation. Yes. They're moving yes. to that. Right. Follow the money. Where is the value? You know, yeah. and sometimes with transformation, we all know that it's not the technology that's the problem. We can do amazing things these days. I mean, I'm sure in 10 years time, people will say, oh, poor old Craig, he had to rely on a smartphone. Now, look, I just tap my head and the chip switches <laughs> on. I mean, things will move forward. But let's be honest, there's not a lot we can't do right now. We're held back by data. We all know that. Our, our problem is we have too much data. It's not set up the right way. If you look at an oil and gas company, you know, if you look at Shell, for 100, 120 years, we've been brilliant at selling product down product verticals. You put Shell on the can, people go, that's, that's good. I recognize that brand. I know it's quality. It's got product providence. It's great stuff. Now, of course, I want to look at a customer. What are all the interactions I have with that customer across different platforms in different ways? And how do I treat the customer as the center of my world rather than the product at the center of my world? So you're, you're that is a difficult shift. You're leading me quite nicely into my next question, which is about big data. Yes. How big data has changed the way we do things in business. Um, you started talking about it in Shell. So first, let's look at that organization before your current organization, Salesforce. Um, 
how has it helped um, uh, big data in, in terms of, for example, predictive maintenance or, I don't know, precision information to enable cost-cutting activities. I think this must be quite exciting for, for businesses where, for example, maintenance work is driven by actual events rather than routine activities against a set time. Um, oh, yeah. Can you tell us about that? To, well, you, these days, whatever business you're in, you have put equipment out there that is, that is sending back a wealth of data. And the question is, how do you use that data? Mm. And as we know, with many examples from, 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 from medicine to gas turbines, yes, um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it, is better at spotting trends and patterns than humans are. Mm -hmm. So if you, so one of the things that I see, um, well, a lot of customers of Salesforce doing, but, but, but certainly the oil and gas companies, I'm running big assets. I'm running those big assets all around the world. And I tend to use pretty much the same, uh, the same equipment in it. A gas compressor there is probably the same as I'm running in many different parts of the world in the upstream and the downstream. I have lots of experts out there at those sites looking at how things are running. Actually, it makes more sense to bring those experts back to a central place, be collecting the data, using the data um, at the point of um, process control, filtering that data for the operations center on site, filtering that data again, bringing it back, doing analysis on it, such that a system can alert the expert to, hey, I'm seeing a same vibration pattern in, uh, I don't know, my refinery in Singapore, as I saw at my wellhead on the same piece of equipment um, in Oman a month ago. Within a week, it failed. You might want to look at this. So you're absolutely right. Mm. But to do it, do not underestimate the difficulty of doing it. Because the thing about AI and machine learning is it needs gazillions of rows of data to start to spot the trends and to get really accurate. Mm. So you've got to build up the data and you get to a certain threshold and it starts to really help you. And I think, you know, this is also one of those things where people shouldn't you know, we see a lot in the press about, oh, we, you know, we'll come out of COVID, a lot of people won't get jobs back because COVID has accelerated this, a lot of this automation. Mm -hmm. Jobs are going to change. That, that is without a doubt. But when you think about what you can do on a plant with all that data, you can make people's operational work safer. You can make them more prepared to do the job. You can give them better training. You can have better conversations with your engineers and with the manufacturers of your equipment because you have better knowledge about how that equipment is really performing. Mm -hmm. You can run alerts off it. And what you can do, and this is where you get to the digital world right now, if I know that data about my plant, can I now offer that to a service to one of my customers? because I'm selling lubricant and fuel to my customers who are probably running much of the same equipment I am. Mm -hmm. So can I now say, because all of this drive is about moving from selling product to selling service around my product. So now can I offer the very thing I'm doing internally to my customers? I'm now gonna help you with your preventive maintenance and that'll add to my database. Oh, and look, now I'm getting even better at it. But of course, none of this, Elaine, is as easy as you think, because the manufacturers of that equipment are saying, oh, you know what, don't worry about talking to a shell. We know more about our equipment than anybody. In fact, don't even worry about their lubricant, because we have our own lubricant we'll put in it. For all they know, they're buying that off shell in the background. Our margin is going through the floor. But they're offering the service because they have access to the data. Mm -hmm. Whose data is it? Because whoever has the most data in this world 
and can analyze it and use it better than anybody else will win. There's no two ways about it. Yes. And, and how does that work in Salesforce? And what is Salesforce Einstein? <laughs> okay. So I think I went on a very interesting journey with Salesforce prior to, prior to joining. Uh, when I took over that global role, I realized lots of pieces of Salesforce were being used all over the company. I was trying to rationalize the number of applications. I thought Salesforce was a CRM. Uh, yeah, this is going back to 2015. Little did I realize what it really is. Actually, it allows me to bring data together around a particular thing, let's say. Mm -hmm. People traditionally think of, oh, it's a CRM. That's about a customer. Yeah. Substitute yeah. the word customer for employee, asset, supplier, engineer, whatever you like. Because what you're actually building around it is one view of that thing with workflow, very sophisticated workflow, with very sophisticated automation and integration engines and with very sophisticated analysis, i.e. things like the Einstein platform. And of course, very sophisticated ways of viewing that data in things such as Tableau. Mm -hmm. Once you get your head around that, this is where the new business models come from. We were moving data in our case, using uh, the MuleSoft middle layer out of some of our big central systems putting that data together in ways we'd never done it before, and then sharing it with the ecosystem of players around a particular business activity. So maybe I'm sharing some of that data with my customers so they can automatically see invoices, statement of account, inventory I'm holding on their behalf, um, uh, where that uh, uh, delivery is coming to them. A salesman has the view of exactly the same data on their device of choice. I'm creating APIs, so maybe my customers are hooking into my systems. Meanwhile, um, my suppliers are coming onto that system to see what am I, what am I running low of a shell? What extra additives do I need delivered, et cetera, et cetera. You build an ecosystem of everybody who adds value to the service you are supplying. Mm -hmm. So everything that happens is out there in the cloud. That is what helps you to transform a company. So Salesforce, I mean, I'm stunned. When I took over as the exec sponsor from Shell to, uh, to uh, Salesforce, it was being used in the upstream to manage the life cycle of a well in the Permian Basin. It's got nothing to do with a customer per se, mm -hmm. but it's the workflow engine. It's the ability to bring all the data together you need, legal, regulatory, parts, design around a well, and then through the operation of it. You, you see it used in HR where it's used as a front end to uh, Workday in many of our customers mm -hmm. to offer a more user, um, you know, a user experience around things that are pertinent to that company. Because what you don't want to do as a CIO is start customizing these big central systems. That is a path to expense, tears, and sorrow. Because <laughs> you can't upgrade, it costs you a fortune to test. That's the reason for using a platform such as Salesforce as this engagement layer and collaboration layer around these big systems. You're bringing data out of many systems and delivering it to me as an employee in a way that I want to use it, in a way that enhances the way I do my job. But why stop at the employee? Touch everyone who uses that business process. And that's the way you drive real transformation. And I think this is quite fascinating. And I wonder if I may, um, in the episode description, put a link to Salesforce Einstein. So my listeners Absolutely. have a look at it. I will talk to you after about this, but it'd be quite nice to put a link in there so the listeners can 
No, I was going to say, I think, you know, there's three major themes in 2021 as we come out of COVID. Things are going to change. Expectations have changed. It doesn't matter um, whether you're a consumer or an employee, your expectation has changed. We have changed as people. We are going to expect different things from the people we buy goods and services from. And I think if there's three things that people want to really focus on, and Einstein is at the heart of this, um, is around data. We've all, we've said <laughs> data is the lifeblood of, of any transformation of any business. Data is the new um, oil, isn't it? Well, they say that. It's an interesting one. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure that is so credible these days, but I think it's the lifeblood. Well, Whatever it, <laughs> data powers transformation. Without the data, you can't do it. The yeah. second one is integration. It's how you integrate services and products together. And again, it's around the data. But the third one is where Einstein plays. It's around intelligence engines. It's intelligent decision-making. It's enhancing the ability of individuals, whether they be customers, suppliers, your engineer, your salesman, you're helping them by offering them additional information, additional takes on the data that help them make a more informed decision. Mm -hmm. And those three things I think are going to be huge in 2021. The whole thing about data, we've, we've known that for years, it's going to, but it's going to grow in importance because that's what's transforming. You're going to integrate and you're going to have these engines of intelligence at the heart of it all, mm -hmm. driving a different way of thinking about things. Thank you. That was quite a comprehensive explanation. Um, let's move on. Um, I mentioned earlier, I'm going to talk about leadership. Um, it's, uh, um, you've said a good leader helps their team and the people around them evolve and move. Um, with the pace of change in the business environment, you, you're talking about it. Everything's really quick at the moment. How do you go about evolving yourself to meet your organization's needs, your team, team's needs, and importantly, your own personal needs? I, I think the most interesting thing about life today is... You've got to remain open-minded, but you've got to create a learning culture. You know, when I look back to when I joined Shell in 1981, I think I was naive to think, oh, wow, I've got my degree. They've taught me how to program. That's me for the next 30 years. Thank you very much. Um, when you look back on the 1980s, yeah, there was a lot of revolution going on. You only have to watch the TV and watch one of these sort of, you know, 1980s yeah. shows. Yeah. But the thing today is, you have to put time aside to learn. And you know, one of the things I kept saying to my teams at Shell was, I want to see you spend 10% of your week learning. Now, actually, 10% of your week, if you think about it, 35-hour week, three and a half hours, that's a morning or an afternoon. Or maybe it's four lunch times. I don't know. But by learning, I don't necessarily mean sitting down and doing a course. Learning comes in many forms. Learning could be I go out on the road with one of our salesmen. And I look at what it's like to be at the front end of our business or I, or I go to one of our distribution terminals or I go to one of our manufacturing plants and I look at the IT we're delivering, what people are struggling with. And I have that horrific moment of realizing our IT is pretty lousy for the jobs they're trying to do because IT tends to be delivered by business people and IT people who sit in head offices. Yeah. It's not necessarily delivered by the person who's going to have to use it out in the field. And if you think about a big company like Shell, I don't know the exact statistic, but let's say 20,000 people sit in a nice office somewhere. 
Every day for Shell, about a million people turn up to work for them with contractors, third parties of 500,000 people on the 50,000 retail sites alone. Think about what it's like to be them. You may go just have lunch with one of your colleagues in the business. You may sit down with a colleague and discuss a particular problem. You may read an article. You may go on the web and do some, and, uh, and, uh, do some homework on new ideas around a particular business. But you have to get into this learning mindset. And your suppliers have a big role to play in this as well. I think gone are the days, and this is very much my role at Salesforce, I am not a salesman. Mm -hmm. um, mine is not to go in there and sell product. Mine is to go in there and be a trusted customer advisor. And that's what I told my people in IT and Shell. Your role is to be a trusted advisor to the business. You have your knowledge, you have your speciality. You're back to what I said earlier. Yours is to challenge, to bring thought leadership. But to do that, you have to be up to date, not just with the technology, but up to date with what is going on in the business. What are the competitors doing? Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds terribly difficult to do, but I think a lot of us got out of the habit of learning on that wider scale, learning on a broader, you know, canvas, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what things do you read every week? And I think a lot of people's learning has suffered when they're no longer uh, commuting into the office over the last nine months. <laughs> yeah, they're not picking up a magazine. They're not reading a, a, a book, yeah, whatever it might be, or listening to uh, what is more common these days, listening to a podcast. Make those things part of your weekly routine. Mm -hmm. Because that, that is what not only grows you as a human being, but it helps you grow your team because you have discussions about things that are outside of the norm. And I expect my suppliers to come in and do the same with me. Come in and talk to me about things that are happening in the industry. Because my goal is to make my customers successful. And to do that, I wanna give them knowledge that helps them think about things in a broader way. And I, and I learn from having the conversations with them. So learning culture is everything and then empower your people to go use that. It's a bit of a two-way street. You're all learning from each other. In that Absolutely, sense. let's not forget that. And these days, you know, I even see it in the offices. Um, I don't know about uh, you, Elaine, and where you may work or what offices you've been to. You go into an office, and I would say 75% of the people are sitting there with headphones on holding calls, which is why I think we've all adopted to working from home so much. When I joined Shell, you didn't have any of that. So we talked a lot more. We talked about what we'd seen on TV the night before, because there were only three channels, right? Gosh, I'm aging myself. Um, <laughs> And we all went to lunch together or we all went to the pub afterwards together. These days, people work in isolation a lot more. That has to change. So for me as a leader, it's imperative that I sponsor lunch and learns, that I sponsor webinars, that I sponsor people within the company to stand up and talk about what they've succeeded in doing, maybe what didn't go so well. We have to learn. And if you get that into your culture, it really starts to empower people and make people feel that they're contributing to the business. Because one of my other big drives with my team um, in that last role at Shell, I had three themes, commerciality, one team and results. So results was business results. One team was, hey guys, we are one team. We're all working for the same company. But commerciality to me was vital. I don't care what function you work for, what business stream you work for. It's imperative that we as IT 
understand the business and how it makes money? How does it add value to that barrel of hydrocarbon as it comes down the supply chain? How do we add value to that electron as it comes down the supply chain? And by knowing that, how are you going to help the business do even better? Because if you don't know how your everyday work puts money on the bottom line of the company, well, what are you doing? How do you prioritize? How do you work out what's best to do? How do you have a conversation if you don't even know how the company makes money? This was all part of my, we have to become commercially aware. We have to become business people who have an IT tool bag. Because if we do, and we do the other things really well, we get our cost under control, we're, we're, we're um, uh, high on reliability, et cetera, et cetera, we will have credibility from the business. Mm -hmm. And that's why in downstream IT, the conversation changed from cost to value. And the business wanted us in the meetings and all of my leadership teams sat on the leadership teams of their businesses by the time I left. And my successor sits on the top team of downstream. Why? Because we matured to a point where we were seen as credible business people. Let's move on. Let's talk about COVID-19. It's not over. Yeah. So we have to talk about it, I'm afraid. Um, let's briefly look at um, some of the effects of COVID-19. Generally, uh, what opportunities have come out in this pandemic in your current organisation? I don't mean lockdown or physical and virtual working arrangements more. Has this brought about certain opportunities that would not have come to fruition if, if the pandemic didn't happen? Yeah, I think, I think it's to do with speed and it's to do with innovation. Mm -hmm. So I think a couple of, the, I mean, if you look at the speed at which Salesforce launched work.com, it was quite incredible. And the speed at which we've launched um, uh, Trace and Track and the speed at which we've now launched um, a, a, um, a uh, vaccination cloud, right? All of these things are, were, were put upon us and we said, we have to respond to the world's needs here. If people are going to get safely back to work, we need to help in that. We have the cloud technology to do it. Our cloud offerings are so flexible, we can reconfigure it very fast to put, it, put the employee at the center of it, put, put the real estate asset around it, combine those two and start to make decisions about how people move in a building, where they sit in a building, how they book seating, how they, you know, all of those things. So it made us more innovative, as, as did the launch of our sustainability cloud. Because COVID, I, I think, has also allowed us to reflect a little bit on what we've done personally or not done personally to help our environment, to help our planet. And that has come a little more to the fore as well. It was already bubbling along, but COVID has again put that in, put that out there as something I hope personally as we come out of COVID, we will look at some of these things in a different way. So I thought it was remarkable the speed at which Salesforce changed in and, and, and evolved and brought new products to market. The other thing we saw was many companies were talking a lot about um, transformation. We're talking about a lot more about how they had to get closer to their customers. Well, boy, did the COVID lockdowns put that into sharp, <laughs> right? People suddenly had that in real sharp focus because they were, oh gosh, I have to shut this store and I now realize I have no way of talking to my customers, let alone selling them products. Even some of the biggest, you know, high street chains we know had no way of engaging on that platform with their customers and saying, okay, I've got that in stock, make your payment. You can come to the store and, and safely pick that up between 10, 13, 11 on the date you've chosen. Couldn't do it. 
incredible. I mean, how many things did I buy off Amazon that were non-food related? I would imagine 90% of things over the last six months. It wasn't that I didn't try and use some of the high street stores. I live in the heart of London, but none of them seemed to be able to do it. They had no connection between the store and the virtual world. And what we've seen at Salesforce is many big companies and, and people who engage in our big um, uh, Dreamforce event this year, which will be uh, virtual, um, unfortunately, rather than uh, the usual uh, mighty event in um, San Francisco, will hear stories from some of our major customers, not only on how they reacted to, uh, to a COVID, but on how they said, you know that rollout we were going to do over 18 months? Yeah. We need to do that in four months. When we come out of COVID, we want to be in a stronger, leaner, fitter place in the way we interact with our customers than we ever were before. Because the future we know is going to be different. Our customers are going to want to order online. Mm -hmm. They might come to our stores to pick up or they might want it to deliver to home. But many people will have changed the way they now operate. And we're going to have to change with it. And we're going to have to provide a far better service. I mean, just to take an example, Elaine, um, you know, I, I, I sort of look at myself as the average guy who will go shopping when my wife says I really should be buying some new clothes, but it's not top of my mind of things to do. I, I won't mention the store, but I went to a pretty high-end store here in uh, London. You spend half an hour, three quarters of an hour looking for things. You finally find them. And they say, oh, sorry, sir, we don't have that in your size. And you go, okay, well, can I pay for it? And you just ship it to me. Oh, no, we can't do that. It's a different system. But if you care to go three miles across London to our other store, we think they have it there. Are you kidding me? Yes. You're telling me that I've come here, I found what I want, and you can't now place an order and have it sent to me? I mean, this I don't think is going to be acceptable to people anymore. Mm. People's idea of what they expect of service and of major brands has changed. And I think it's very interesting because COVID has really made organizations see what they should have done yesterday. Yes. And, yes. and now they're yes. scrambling to get it done. Well, and I think it's also made us want to shop locally more. Yeah, as I say, I live in the heart of London. You can hear from my clock. That isn't actually Big Ben. That's a grand <laughs> the pocket. Yeah. Although I do live within the sound of Big Ben. Um, mm -hmm. People want to shop more locally. They want to appreciate their local shops. We know we might spend a little bit more, but we think we're helping the local community. And this is worrying the bigger hypermarkets, the bigger supermarkets, because the danger is now they get pushed to the staples, which is not where they make the money, you know, the canned goods, all of these things. And we start to shop for fresh stuff locally and go back to a world that was something maybe we were used to in our childhood. Indeed, in France, where I think French high streets and villages have not destroyed their high street as much as perhaps we have in the UK, mm -hmm. you, you've seen a big resurgence. And the big out-of-town out hypermarkets there are very worried mm -hmm. that people are not going to go back to a world where they say, yeah, you know what, I'm willing to go and drive somewhere and spend two hours going around this big shop mm -hmm. to do my daily shop. Ain't going to happen. Now, what's this going to do to traffic? How's this going to change the way we, does this mean there's going to be a consolidation of the delivery companies? Are they going to use greener energy? I mean, th th this is going to have so many knock-on effects that I think we just can't believe what's coming. You look at meetings, yeah? 
Um, we're all having these types of meetings. We're getting very used to it. Am I ever going to travel the same way again? I, you know, maybe I used to go to China four times a year. I suspect in the future I'll go once and the rest will be happy to do on this because we'll be ticking our environmental box. Mm -hmm. We realize we can talk to many more people in a day if we're... Um, the technology is better uh, now? Sorry? The technology is better now in terms of doing well, this virtual meeting? I think the next jump, is, yeah, the technology is definitely better, but the next jump, going back to that intelligence engines, is you're going to have engines that start to actually document what goes on in the meeting actually not only documents the words being said but documents the way in which it was said so that piece about oh my god i've now got to type all this up will be taken away from us and the thing will become more and more an acceptable way to work and become a record of the meeting that occurred you're going to see that come out i think it's extremely interesting times ahead of incredibly and you've already by your last statement talked about the, the, my next question which is sort of the crystal ball question where we look into the future say 10 years from now very very briefly um because i'd like to move on to the other question after that very briefly can you visualize and explain the role of the cio i would hope that the cio becomes the second most important person in a company so i say that slightly tongue-in-cheek but i have grown up through an era of my uh, working life where the ceo would stand up in front of the um the uh, market analysts um, uh, would, would do the company results and who would they have at their side? The CFO. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I've got nothing against CFOs. Yeah. Uh, clearly they are on management teams because they bring a deep understanding of how the business is operating because they have a deep understanding of the numbers. Well, I kind of hope the CEO does as well. I would be investing in a company where when the CEO stands up, to give that quarterly review to the markets, to give that shareholder meeting, the CIO is the person next to him or her. Hmm. Because if your CIO is not the second most important person in your company, I think you've got a problem. I think you've got a real issue. Because business, five, 10 years from now, the lifeblood of that business will be data and the technology that is taking that data and turning it into business value and business opportunity is gonna be at the heart of everything you do. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see the CIO be the second most important person in a company. Mm. And I think it's coming. I would also say, Elaine, you have to have the right person. I would say 50% of CIOs are still really rather technical people who love the operational side. The CIO has got, you, you see the new breed of CIO, but we need more of them. Just briefly, what's the new breed of CIO? They are thought leaders within the company. Mm. They are driving innovation within the company. They are helping the business be better than the business thought it could be because they understand how the technology can impact on what the business is trying to achieve. But it's about thinking business first. Yes, I was a CIO. I grew up in IT. I get excited about the technology. Mm -hmm. But that's not what makes the difference. It's how you apply that technology to the business opportunities. And it's particularly as a big company, you, you know, if you go back to the 1980s, 1990s, and in history before that, the big companies were the big fish in the sea. If they saw up and coming smaller fish, they bought, they bought them, they swallowed them whole, and they incorporated them into the overall corporation for better or for worse, I hasten to add. Nowadays, those big companies are being pursued by a shoal of piranha fish. 
And those fish are biting off all the juicy bits that are where the value is. And if you're not careful, you'll be left with this massive infrastructure, pipelines, trucks, you know, depots, uh, refineries, petrochemicals, plants, just like the banks are being left with all these branches and real estate, but the real action has moved to the digital world. Yes. Yeah. And that's the risk. And all those little piranhas are biting off the juicy bits where the money can be made. You see it in fintech. You see it in different models um, uh, coming out, particularly in the downstream um, part of an oil and gas business. You have to move at the same speed. And at the heart of that, you need an inspirational CIO who has credibility with the business, credibility with the CEO, credibility with the, with the shareholders, and is seen as one of the most important people in your company. Um, I, I'm going to move on to the, my final question. Okay. Um, okay, I've asked this question before, but I'd like your input on it. It's, it's a general question. It's not related directly to your role or your work or your organization. Um, with regards to COVID-19 and how this whole pandemic has been handled, is the cure worse than the disease? We are looking at, you know, the economic damage and fallout, mental issues with lockdown and a generation of school children being taught through a screen. Are the responses and measurements, probably let's just concentrate on the UK perhaps, <laughs> are the responses and measurements in place more of an issue than the virus itself? Um, please wear whatever hat you choose, be it a business hat, personal hat or a parent's hat. I think, look, this is the first time anybody in this generation has been through a pandemic of this seriousness. In many respects, it could have been worse. If the thing was more lethal than yeah. it is, and I feel terribly sorry for people who've lost loved ones, it could have been even worse. I think the biggest issue is we were not prepared. Even though people have been warning, the scientists have been warning, people like Bill Gates have been warning that this was a real possibility. We had a couple of narrow escapes with SARS mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. Um, then with um, you know, the second strain of it. Uh, and we didn't really react. I actually feel sorry <laughs> in some bizarre way for our politicians. I don't often feel sorry for them. <laughs> I think they were caught in a place where they really didn't know how to react. And whatever you did, you were going to be damned if you did and damned if you didn't, and you weren't well enough prepared. But that preparation, even if it were there, it comes back to, Elaine, what we've been talking about a lot throughout this conversation. It came back to data. Mm. Nobody had the data. We didn't have the track and trace in place. We didn't have the testing in place. Now, maybe track and trace will be different in future. Maybe we've learned our lesson and we now hopefully will have a system that works and hopefully works on a global basis. Testing is very difficult because you've got to build the test to whatever it is you're facing. But without the data, you were always going to use rather crude measures to control the threat that you faced. Mm -hmm. So I feel sorry for people because I think they were flying blind. At times they overreacted, at times they underreacted. I do believe that our government acted in the best way they could. It's tremendously difficult. You're balancing health versus versus the economy yeah. and both have an effect on health as you just said um so what do you do in these 
in these uh, circumstances. So I think the big learning is you had better be a damn sight better at collecting the data and analyzing that data and making sound decisions on the data that you can explain to people and people get it. Now, I also believe the public has a big role to play in this. I don't think we reacted as we should have. I don't think we realized the seriousness of it early on. I would certainly put myself in that case. I thought when we locked down, ah, oh, this will maybe last four weeks and you know, it'll all be through and summer will be here. No, it, no, it didn't. And now it's coming back. Yeah. I think we as the public, if we need to stand up and say, we will be responsible adults, so please treat us as, treat us as adults. Clearly the virus um, uh, infection rates are far higher indoors. Mm -hmm. But we have not, as a, as a general public, um, behaved uh, responsibly. So the government therefore swung to harder measures. You know, I think the second lockdown was always coming because when we came out of the first one, people did not show the responsibility that they should have shown. You know, you only had to go out on the streets of London to see that, mm -hmm. to see people were not really obeying, even if they weren't the rules, let's say uh, the meaning behind the rules. They weren't understanding that they were going to be responsible for the second outbreak. And it was always going to happen. You only had to go, you know, as I say, I live in the center of London. You only had to walk the streets and see how, in my view, a number of restaurants and bars were not following the rules. Mm. On the flip side, if the government says these are the rules, they need to enforce the rules. There needs to be a, a response. You know, if a pub, if you go into a pub, um, as an inspector and they're not following the rules, you shut down that establishment for a month because they're ruining it for everybody else. Yeah, I was recently in, uh, in uh, Malta. This is a picture behind me. I was there for a month in the summer. Um, yeah, I chose to work from there. Every restaurant we went to, virtually at some time in the evening, the inspectors would turn up and check. Is everyone wearing a mask? What's going on in the kitchen? Are you following the rules? Have you disinfected these tables? Because if you didn't, they shut the restaurant down. That's a smaller place. Maybe it was easier to police. But I think there's lessons to be learned here. We have to be more responsible. You have to get the data. You have to be able to explain that data to the population. And then as a government, you need to react and make the tough decisions. But do it in a way you can, you can explain it to us and make us be responsible for the outcome. You know, I hope business recovers fast. I think technology has a big role to play in that. I think there's a lot we can do to help businesses get back on their feet. I think Salesforce is definitely working hard to do that. We're working very hard with many of our customers to do that mm -hmm. and to get society back to where it needs to be. But we know this has been a big hit and it's not going to be an easy recovery, but let's learn the lessons from it. Let's not just sweep it under the carpet and go, oh, 2020 was a dreadful year. Hopefully that <laughs> won't happen again because the chances are it will. Because this comes back to the health of our planet. We don't know. It comes back to us doing the right thing. Yes. So it's it pretty much data, 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 or data. I think it is. I think, think it is. You know, it's been a fascinating discussion and fascinating <laughs> topics. I, I'm sure we will talk more on Heads Talk about this. In the meantime, Craig Walker, many thanks for your time and insights. Elaine, thank you very much. It's it's been a pleasure and honour. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you 
for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.